Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. It is May the 19th, 2021, an ongoing edition of the LSAT Life podcast with my co-hosts and partners in crime, Keith Seiska in Texas and Jake Feldman in New York City. How are you two today? Good. Thank you, John. Doing great. Thanks. Have there been any seismic shifts in the LSAT the last week? <laughs> the last week? Probably not. Not I mean, a single thing? I Actually, guess with, you know, within the last month, they announced that what the August tests were going to start having the four sections. Yeah. So that's relatively new. Now that's interesting. So that is that is one of them experimental? Yeah. Yes. Right. So, so if I'm understanding this correctly, you know, I don't follow this too, too much anymore. But uh, so that now they did not have an experimental for a while because of the pandemic. And now they're back to having the experimental. Yeah. They've run out of questions. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. You know, I always thought <laughs> that the experimental section was a really, really big help psychologically and emotionally to test takers. Because, you know, for almost everybody, there's a moment on the test where you know, things maybe aren't going as well as it should. And, you know, they're starting to have distracting thoughts like, well, you know, uh, maybe my father's plumbing career isn't so bad after all. Um, actually, you want to make money, become a plumber, forget the law thing. Okay, for sure. And they start thinking about things other than LSAT. But if they're really doing badly, you know, to know that one of those is experimental, that they would obviously should say to themselves, their self-talk becomes, oh, well, Obviously, this is the experimental section, right? Yeah, it's too hard to be real. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and of course, you know, I, I could not personally mess up anything that really counted, right? I mean, you know, that's that's the story of my life. So that's that's kind of interesting. Now, what that does do is it adds a bit more time to the test as well. Um, good or bad to add more time to the test? What you're thinking on that? You know, I, I think it does a disservice to those who have accommodations. Anybody who's got time and a half or double time under this flex scenario, the, the, the full time for the test was still sort of within the, the bounds of reason. Um, but when you start getting to four sections and, and the, the, the double time people are taking almost five hours, that's, mm-hmm. that's too much. Well, it's definitely, it is definitely an exhausting event. There's no question about that. Now, actually, on that point, asking you, you know, to try to help me, asking you to keep me up to date on this, um, I get, my impression is that there are different times of the day this test is offered now. Yeah, they, they yeah. spread it out through the entirety of the day. Interesting. You know, that seems to me to be very bad for certain types of people. Is there a way to control the time that you you do the test? Like, can you, you know, opt for first thing in the morning or something or you can try, but it but it fills up quickly. They said that the June test was that had the largest sign up of any uh, administered LSAT in, in their recorded history. Oh, my God. Maybe I should be teaching LSAT. You know, the demand yeah, is the demand is huge for that. that. That's recorded history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the entire, what does LSAT mean by recorded history? I mean, do they believe years. there was a world before the LSAT, for example? <laughs> no. The, the world is 35 years old. The world is 35 years <laughs> old. It was created 35 years ago. In, exactly. In it sounds like the LSAT. Europeans coming to North America, no history till they arrive, right? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> 
Oh, that is really, really interesting. Um, but my impression on this is, given that there's, what, 90 released LSATs or something of this nature now? Something yeah, it's like close that. To a, it's close to 100, actually, when you sprinkle in all those sort of the weird ones and the, uh, the non-numbered okay. ones. They don't have 1 through 18 on Law Hub, though, so I don't know why those are the missing ones, but they're hard to hard to find. Really? Yeah. Jeez, yeah. just last year I threw out, I had every every <laughs> LSAT thing and recorded history. Oh, man, that's a collector's dream. I've what? got them. I've got them. I've got one through eighteen. I've got okay. A, B, and C. I've got May ninety four. Whatever. It is. I've got them all somewhere. You know, I used okay, to collect. Yeah, uh, absolutely enhance the tutoring experience with you. <laughs> you know, I used to collect the uh, the pre LSAT LSATs, the law school admission test before the modern LSAT. I used to like to look at those, and they're fascinating. They had pictures. They had made up languages. I mean, it was really a bizarre, bizarre exam. Yeah, it was called it was called artificial language. That's exactly right. And <laughs> you know, my own experience doing the LSAT, um, you know, was that was actually well. I mean, this is going to sound, I, I, you know, like just prehistoric history to many of our listeners. But you know, it was actually in the seventies. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, it was a completely, completely different test and the artificial language thing was an experimental section at the time. Um, it wasn't really, I don't think it ever made the cut uh, as being a, um, a, a scored section, but it was definitely yeah. around. Now, the other stuff they had at the time was uh, stuff that I would call in the quantitative camp. Hmm. Um, they had... Um, you both teach the GRE too, do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. So they still have the quantitative comparisons on those tests, right? Uh, no, column they, A, column B, which number is yeah, greater? Yeah, yeah, And they're they're on the GMAT, and they're they're sprinkled around. Yeah. So they had that, and they had a section they called data interpretation. It was actually uh, reading graphs and charts, which I remember nobody yep. could read. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Did they ever have data sufficiency like they have on GMAT? No, no, they never. Yes, yes, they did. They did yeah. have that for a brief time on the LSAT as well. They called it practical. Oh, hang on. No, I'm sorry. You said data sufficiency. No, they did not have data sufficiency. What they had was, as an overlap section, was something that was called practical judgment, where you were given a business situation, uh, and then they would ask you, uh, you know, for example, let's imagine that you're trying to decide which of two houses to buy, right? That's the, that's the objective, house A or house B. And they begin with a paragraph that says, you know, there are three major factors that govern this, okay? One is the total monthly cost of, of owning it. Uh, the second is the proximity to schools and groceries. And the third is, uh, let's just work with the two, okay? So what they then, now those would be the major factors. What they would then do would give you minor factors, things that would bear on or would be components, for example, of the cost of, of monthly ownership. So for example, um, taxes, interest payments, right? And when they were to spit out, you know, what's the categorization of say property tax on property A, that would, would have been a minor factor, not a major factor. And then they'd have a, there's something called assumptions. So that would, that would play out very much like the LSAT, you know, where they'd say, well, uh, they put in the intro. So the decision is whether uh, house A or house B and, you know, the Smith family has decided to buy because, you know, they believe that housing prices will grow 5% a year or something. So the assumption would be, 
how would they phrase it? A belief that housing prices will increase over time, you know, for example, right? And then they would have, you know, irrelevant issues. They call it, for example, um, a date that Prince Charles married Lady Diana Spencer or something. And, and, and now if you didn't know how to manage it, a lot of people who were obsessed with the royals, would, oh, major factor, major factor, right? But of course, if you, you know, follow what you're being asked to do, you look at that and say, what? You know, irrelevant. In other words, you know, it depends on whether you figure out what you're being asked to do, which, you know, actually brings me to a thread that was on the group today about necessary sufficient, which I thought was kind of interesting. Did either of you want to comment on that? <laughs> well, I, 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 all I'll say is that I find there to be a trope among LSAT takers that they believe they understand what they need in order to answer these questions right. And not invariably, but much more frequently than not, they're looking at the wrong things. Um, they're concentrating on the icing on their cake, and they haven't baked their cake yet. All of the all of the tips, and, and there were there were great explanations for how necessary and sufficient are different from each other, and all of those things are useful, but they're only useful to people that understand the the form of argumentation to begin with. How can you yeah. know whether you're looking for a necessary or a sufficient thing if you don't know what's wrong with the argument to begin with? Yeah, you have to know what an assumption is before you can worry about whether it's necessary or assumption. You have to, or, or sufficient. You have to know the flaw. And I think the real problem here, one of the real problems, you know, to prep for today's podcast, we tried to research what were the good materials out there? What do we recommend to people who aren't going to hire us? And on this particular topic, I'll have to say, I can't think of one. I can't think of one resource that's really got a concise explanation of how these two concepts differ and how they overlap and what is the root of each. I think the PowerScore Bible goes into too much detail and confuses the issue and the other resources are missing key points of the connection. They're, they're talking about the distinctions and never the similarity. And that was what beguiled the thread today. Everyone said, here's how they're different. And nobody ever addressed the fact that they overlap at a key point. And that key point is the flaw of the argument. And that's the essence of the whole inquiry. Well, you know, Keith, uh, that makes just too much sense. You don't actually expect anybody to pay you for such wisdom, do you? They don't have to. They just got it for free. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which is why everybody should listen to the LSAT Life podcast. That's right. Learn the meaning of life for free. Think of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It, so, it, is, it, it is amazing to me, by the way, I just want to throw this out there. It is amazing to me how often people get frustrated with me when I tell them it's simpler than they're making it out to be. They they're, want it they, to be complicated yeah, because let, they don't get it. Let's talk about that for a minute, okay? Because <laughs> I think this is a, a psychological aspect to the LSAT that I think is a very unhealthy psychological aspect. Yeah. Why do people want to complicate this stuff? Because if it's simple and they don't understand it, they believe that that reflects poorly on them. Yeah. And if it's complicated and they don't get it, then it's, you know, reasonable not to get it. Ah, uh, you know, they're, they're just too young. I used to be that way. And now I've, I've reached the stage in life where I'm so proud of how far I've gotten with how little I can do. <laughs> uh, you know, but honestly... <laughs> I think that's not a bad principle for Elsa. Would you agree? Yeah. yeah that's absolutely. why, 
you know, what's interesting when I did a slide today on what are the absolute must have resources, like the things you could not do without in your LSAT prep. And the first one on there is Law Hub. I think you're pretty much kind of forced to buy the, the hundred official prep tests because they've got they've such a stranglehold on the copyright. But well, everything I think else, you want them anyway, in fairness, wouldn't you? Oh, well, yeah, well, sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, but everything always... else on my list is free. That's what I thought was really fascinating. It was a free dictionary online, Law Hub, a good study schedule, you know, time management skills and concrete goals that you set for each study session and weekly and monthly. And I think if you have those four things, you honestly don't need a single strategy book or even a tutor. I mean, they can help, but those were the essentials on my must have. It's so simplistic. You need the official tests. You need some time to study them, a dictionary to figure out what they mean and set some goals for yourself. Go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Start well, studying probably it. With a view to putting the right answer to the question also. Sure. Well, That's, but here's you know, thing, part right? of goal setting. Yeah. I mean, all, all of the resources out there, really what they're offering you are shortcuts to this, right? This is possible for everybody with enough time and enough attention to detail and enough uh, sort of analytical know-how. You can get all these things. What PowerScore is offering you is a way to get out of having to do all that baseline analysis by doing it all for you. They've, they've done all the data. They know how many questions of each type. They've, they've separated them all out into their own little buckets, right? And then other people are trying to weave together sort of ideas that are, that are different or similar from what PowerScore has done, but they're all offering you short circuits on this. That's yeah, it yeah. It's, it's almost as though, um, it's almost as though the stuff is presented in a way that you're required to explain why the answer to a question is correct or that you're required to be, you know, an LSAT tutor, you know, explaining necessarily why it's correct. I mean, it's extremely top heavy stuff. Um, yeah. And I'm not, I wouldn't single out, you know, any one company on that, but it does seem to me that the overall culture of LSAT preparation has been an attempt to complicate, to create more issues, to create distinctions among distinctions, you know, et cetera. And, you know, I, uh, God, if I were faced with that, there's no way I'd be able to keep all that stuff in my head anyway. And even if I could, I could never apply it under the time conditions. That, that was my message. I had uh, uh, open office hours right before we recorded, and that was my message this morning to people. You can't recall all of that information that you read. That stuff is all sprinkles, right? Once you've got a baseline understanding of how you go about answering these questions, when you face something that you cannot analyze on your own and you need help, that's when you go to a resource to, to guide you. But it has to be a guide. You can't swallow it hook, line, and sinker. If you do and you accept it at face value, you don't understand it. You have to parse what's in the guides, what's in the prep materials, and incorporate it into your own language and your own understanding. If you haven't done that, then you don't actually know what you're doing and you haven't you haven't made that leap. These aren't useful to you, you know, PowerScore or, or, or LSAT Trainer or Blueprint or Kaplan. They all say stuff in them that is relevant to the LSAT that explains what's there and what can be understood from it. But is it useful to you? Does it help you get more right answers? 
That's that's the critical part, and that's all of Keith's free stuff. That's how you get to there. I remember reading Power Score. I had been uh, I had been a, a tutor for ten years or so, and finally decided I guess I better read that since everybody's talking about it. And uh, I remember learning things that I never knew, and I was a 99th percentile scorer, and thinking, "Man, this is a great book for a tutor," but uh, I don't see how this helps the student. Not not those who aren't top level students anyway. Yeah. Top level yeah. test takers. And and you know, all this being said, I think there are books out there and resources out there that have attempted to do a good job, that have attempted to do the thing that we're talking about and do it to various degrees of, of efficacy. Um I th I think uh, the LSAT trainer, Mike Kim's book, is really good. And I think more than any other, he focuses on flaws and argumentation to a sufficient degree that it's part of your sort of habit of mind when you're looking at arguments. I think he does a good job there. Um, do I, is it the way that I look at it entirely? No, but that doesn't mean it's not good. Um, I think Ellen Cassidy's loophole does a good job at looking at some of the underlying skills to LR and argumentation that are necessary. Things like, um, you know, basic English grammar and how to reorganize sentences and paragraphs and uh, seeing the ways that uh, language can shift. But it's not it's not a complete picture picture of argumentation. It's still bits and pieces that she finds directly relevant to answering questions. Um, but that she misses the, the, the full picture. She's, she's missing the forest. Um, you know, I, I think there are explanations out there that are really good. I, you know, uh, the, do you ever use the, the online explanations? You ever go to Velocity Prep and listen to what, what he has to say on a question or look at the Manhattan Prep forums or the PowerScore forums? Yeah, sometimes I do. And, and you know, I, I've looked at the Manhattan Prep forums and the PowerScore forums. I actually like Graham's website, LSAT Hacks. I think Graham has some interesting takes on questions. And I particularly like recommending it to people because of the way he lays it out on the page. Um, I don't like video explanations for people because you have to watch the whole thing in order to figure out what's where. And that means that you, you don't get the benefit of stopping part way and saying, no, I only want to read that. And then I want to go and try on my own. You sort mm -hmm. of have to get through the whole video first. But Graham does a good job of saying, here's a, here's a place to start. And you, you don't have to scroll down all the way. So you can say, okay, let me just take his starting bit and see if that's enough for me to figure out what's going on here. And then if I need a little more and if I hmm. need a little more. His explanations are scaffolded is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. And, and you, know, you know, thinking about what we were talking about the other night with legal writing, um, he does them in an order that makes sense. So in that way, I appreciate that about the way he's laid out the website. Um, you know, he doesn't explain things the way that I do all the time, and that's fine. You know, everybody's got their different explanations. But I think that's it's an interesting resource if you're really stuck on something and you just need a spark. That might be a good way to get a spark. Um, whereas the forums don't do that. The forums, you know, you're you're already getting the answer before you've even begun, um, which makes it hard. So, so Jake, I've ever actually looked at any of this stuff, like these things that you call forums or LSAT hacks or whatever, like who, are these general discussions or are these like, uh, you know, specific LSAT teachers who sort of have the job of populating this stuff? So PowerScore and Manhattan Prep both host for, like 
you know, listserv forums that are similar to what the Facebook group is, where someone will post a question and say, help me with this. Um, and so ultimately what they ended up doing is having entire guides. Every LSAT, every section, every question, there will be the question at the top, and then there will be an explanation from somebody that works at PowerScore or somebody that works at Manhattan Prep who's written out an explanation. And then there's sort of a discussion thread about it below. Yeah, um, you know, I, uh, I'm going to throw something in here with full acknowledgement, by the way, I've never looked at any of these things. So yeah, you know, uh, just without limitation. Um, I think people need to understand that an LSAT explanation is an explanation through the eyes of one particular author. And that part of good LSAT explanations, I think, uh, should focus on more than, uh, you know, an explanation of why, for example, B is correct. I think it should also focus on how, for example, B, you know, relates to the other choices, right? Um, and, and of course, the question itself. So I would be, you know, I would be cautious to use that stuff only to the extent that it helps you. Uh, I mean, I remember many years ago um, being sort of a reader for although I haven't seen him for a number of years, I think I call him a friend, uh, Patrick O'Malley uh, runs something called uh, Get Prepped LSAT, and he was busy writing a bunch of explanations for publication, which were really quite good. Um, so, I mean, happy to shout out for that if it's still available. But, you know, I was, I was always left with the sense that as good as this is, it's very important to understand that this is one perspective, Right you know, one style of sort of explaining this stuff. And, you know, one of the uh, advantages of individual tutoring going to, you know, one of you guys or, or both or whatever, is that a good tutor is able to provide different, different explanations to the same right answer for, you know, different kinds of minds, right? Uh, you know, and, and reading skills, which is, I think, extremely important. I think that's why our classes are are so valuable because we're we have a series of prep test classes that are kind of a hybrid model where it's sort of a flipped classroom insofar as the students do the work before we meet and discuss and then our class model is somewhat lecture driven we're still experimenting with that but then we have office hours where people can come follow up and ask questions and get more individual attention on the you know, on their take or questions that we couldn't address in class. So for me, that's a, a, a nice, a, a nice trade off between the, the costs of private tutoring and the, the needs for individualized attention, basically. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that, that strikes me from listening to the two of you talk about this is that, uh, would, I mean, would you agree with what I'm about to say as a general principle? that people really need to do some stuff sort of on their own first before seeking out, you know, tutoring and stuff like that. hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that some people, even when they've done that, when they finally turn to tutoring, sometimes they, they want too much. I have people who want three hours a week and I try to dissuade them, even though it's against my interests. I Would try you to do get three them... hours at one and one sit, sitting with them. No, they want to do like three times a week, meet for an hour. And I just find that they haven't done enough work in between our sessions for them to be really meaningful. They're just it's more of a lecture. They're just listening to me, you know, 
showcase my skills and they aren't practicing the skills enough. They're not taking enough of the lead in the, in the process. Well, they're confusing knowing what to do with being able to do what they know. Right. I think. Right. And this is, I mean, you know, an incredibly uh, common problem. I mean, you know, it's the bane of my life for years and years. You know, the other problem is the confusing the acquisition of information, you know, with the application of skills, right? Yeah. I mean, this is why, this is why, and, and this is, again, you know, like I, 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 I talk about prep materials, printed and video and websites out in the world um, as a dangerous resource, not because what they've got is bad. For the most part, what these, what these resources have is good and accurate and helpful. Right. But it doesn't replace the work that you have to do. It's only additive to it. It's secondary to it. You still must drive your learning. Those things are not your teacher. You are not an eight-year-old in second grade learning addition and subtraction for the first time with somebody overseeing your metacognition, taking care of your executive functioning, structuring your learning. You have to do all that stuff. And this is only a matter of saying, I'm trying to learn and trying to get better at this thing. And when I need an expert to help me, that's when I bring the expert in. I mean, you know, you make the analogy to athletics because it's so easy, right? If you want to become a better tennis player, the first thing you do is you go and buy a, a, a tennis racket and a couple of balls and get a friend and go out on the court and find out if you like it and get used to just hitting the ball. And after a while, when you get athletic, you get somebody to take a look at you, make small adjustments and say, OK, now go do that for a couple of weeks and come back at me. It's not seven days a week, two hours a day of deep training when you're just starting out. You have to become an athlete first. And then once you're an athlete, then we can find out if you can be a world class athlete. Let's talk about what people should expect from a good LSAT tutor. And, and where I'm going with this is, um, I will throw this out as a statement that you can agree, disagree, or we can start the discussion. I do not believe that people should go to tutorings or LSAT classes with a view to using everything they're exposed to. Agree, disagree? I, I would agree almost entirely that they shouldn't emulate what the teacher exposes them not, to the yeah, not always not always in other words here's a new way of doing this i mean if it works for them great but if they don't see the value you know i mean after an honest sort of evaluation of it you know everything's so situational in lsat prep jake said that everything's accurate or, or most of what you find in the materials is accurate and i agree with that and i think the difficulty is that it's not clear when to apply what? So the things that are very effective on a time test are completely ineffective in your untimed conceptual study. The things that are good for you when you're doing conceptual development are really horrible for you on a time test. And, and so there's so many paradoxes in the prep where, where there is a, a correct thing to do, but people are doing it at the wrong time. You know, that's it's the great, negation that's test. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. You know, you know what, how I used to define a principle or an approach when it comes to LSAT? Here's how I used to define it. I guess I still do. Um, is simply this, that a principle or approach is something you use when you're, ha when you're having trouble identifying the answer. 
Right. Yeah. If the answer is straightforward and intuitive, then you pick it and move on. Yeah. I mean, enough of this stuff clearly is. And to, you know, I think you want to reserve the, oh God, I don't know what to call it. You know what, you know what I mean? The taught hard, hard one analysis sort of stuff, right? You know, when you're really having trouble with something and you really need it, because I find that, you know, the more you think about what you're doing, like if you were to ask what is the right way to do this or something, right? Um, you know, the less you're thinking about what the question's telling you and what you're being asked to do. And I, I you know, after all this, I really have a lot of trouble seeing how anything can be a good idea to managing the LSAT if it moves you away from, you know, fundamentally what you're being asked to do with this stuff, right? It's, you know what it is? The more approaches people learn, the more they want to recreate the test in their mind to convert it into something that it's actually not, right? Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm a podcast listener for other podcasts as well. One of the things that I've been listening to, it's a, it's a great podcast on golf. Do you and listen to ours too? Our podcast? I, I do. I do. Yeah. That's good. On, re, on re- all else, teachers should listen to our podcast. <laughs> um, but th- <laughs> it's this these two guys who are who are you know amateur golfers who are trying to improve, um, and it's about psychology and sports and you know it's all all kinds of stuff. They said something brilliant in an episode I listened to recently, which was that one of the big mistakes that they keep making is that when they go to the golf course, they're playing golf swing instead of playing golf that they spend all the time holding their clubs thinking about all the ways that they should make their swing different and all of the technique bits how i'm holding my hands how my hips are turning how my shoulders are turning um you know where the club should be going as it's hitting the ball instead of thinking about the game itself where do i want the ball to go where do i want it to land what is my next shot going to be so they're, what they're concentrating on is left brain technique about the things that they're doing rather than the game that they're playing. And I think the, the, the parallel is perfect here. I think, I think it's a perfect parallel as well. And, you know, frankly, I think that the first piece of advice people should be given is to put the right answer to the question. Yep. You know, yep. that's the first thing. But, you know, again, you know, people think you're kidding or, you know, what else you got, you know, but actually, you know, that's very, very good advice. And this... Yeah. You, there is a there is a time and a place to work on technique when you're a golfer, and that's when you go to the driving range. You go to the driving range and you work on your technique and you work on the swing. And then if you go out to the golf course, you play the game and you play the game with the swing that you have today, and you try to get the best score you can. And then the next day you go back to the driving range and work on your technique again. Left well, you wouldn't go so far though as to say that the the, the LSAT experience is a bad time to apply what you've learned. No, I but don't. you have to do it intuitively. You can't be highly. No, I, I, think, I think that's exactly right. In some so, ways, it is a bad time. I, you know, when I used to teach the classroom classes, uh, students would sometimes come up to me after class and say, do you use this technique? Do you do the negation test or whatever the topic of the oh, day Jesus happened to be? Christ. And I would have to I would have to tell them, you know, in all honesty, when I'm taking the test, I don't. I read the question. And I read the stimulus and I think a little bit and then I pick the answer that I like. And then I go on to the next question and I do it again. And I don't think about any of that stuff. And so then they they will go the other way and they'll say, oh, so none of this matters? And I'll say, no, no, that's not what I'm saying either. It all matters. It matters now. It doesn't matter during the test. It matters for your intellectual development. 
No, it, it matters. It matters for learning how to do certain questions better at the margins. Okay. And by the way, when I say doing them better, although the, you know, the right answer is always the objective. Okay. Um, I actually, I'm going to modify that slightly. The goal is always the, you know, is always the, the right answer, but I think the objective is to put yourself in the best guessing position. Right. I mean, either you identify, you bring it home and get the right answer or you put it, you know, down to a very, very good 50, 50 guess or something like that. And, you know, again, this is something that it, it's always been amazing to me that common sense doesn't sell very well. Uh, you know, it's as though they think, you know, you're trying to con them. I mean, you know, what a stupid idea, putting the right answer. Why would I do that? You know what? I can take five steps and then get it wrong and waste a bunch of time getting it wrong, right? But, you know, this is the mindset of, you know, a large number of people doing the test. It's almost, you know, it's almost as though they need permission to do what they know is right, you know, to put the answer. I mean, nobody will know in the whole wide world after they put all those right answers without necessarily using a process. Nobody will know it. They can leave the test with their high LSAT score and say, by God, I applied every rule I knew for every question. If it makes them feel better. See, I but, think that I think that being really diligent and rigorous about applying those um, those algorithms on your untimed practice, we call it blind review or strategy planning steps. I think that if you're willing to do that, you know, it's tedious work. You're doing the negation test for every answer, whether you need to or not. You're paraphrasing things that you intuitively understood. You're doing a lot of exercises in, you know, using our system. And the goal is to make those things intuitive so that you don't have to do them on the real test. You know when they're helpful, when they're not helpful, and they become sort of subscripts to how you read in general, not added, you know, added principles that you apply after the fact. Yeah, 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 absolutely. This is tough. All right, so yeah. Elsa. I mean, uh, let, let me just add, you know, one, one, of the, one of the things that's hardest is the web of confusion, right? If you weave Sorry, the, the web, web of, of what? The web of confusion. Oh, when, yeah. you weave, when you weave a web of confusion in your brain, when you start layering ideas on top and not integrating them into, into the sort of the, the, the fundamental habits, right? The fundamental thinking habits. Then all you do is you, you muddy up the waters. You fill your bookshelf with 30 books and you don't know what to draw from. You, your, your mind becomes uh, muddied with all of these new concepts. That's why, you know, when you think about challenge, you, in the last episode, we were talking about setting appropriate challenges for mm -hmm. yourself. You have to meet them out in, in, in small doses. Let me give myself one or two things, not 10 things, not the whole power score Bible, one or two things. Let me incorporate those. And when they become part of the way that I think, I'll start with new stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's say that we were to put books. I'm going to use the word book to mean available LSAT prep materials in some medium or another. Okay. Sure. So let's say we put them in three categories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And for those who were born after the year 2000, that's an old Clint Eastwood movie. 
You might but, have to tell them who Clint Eastwood was as well. Oh, God damn it. That's true, too. Well, that's why we have Google, right? That's fair. Okay. Actually, I think he was the mayor of some California town relatively recently. Am I right on that? That's right. I think that's right. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, so let's start off with the good. In other words, only good stuff can come from that. So that would be what? High quality tutors, if you can afford it. Um, Law Hub, the Prep Plus books with sure. real yeah. LSATs in them. All right. So, you know, obviously you start with what LSAT has. And I'm, I'm going to add something in here. I know that I've said this before. Not a lot of people feel good about my saying this, but I will. I actually think the LSAT Super Prep books are important books for you because anytime LSAT says something about their own test, that's really not a bad thing to listen to. Okay. How old you know, are those though? I mean, how applicable are they? Probably they're they're okay. They're very well, they're, very old. Well, it's, it's the only stuff that I'm really aware of. Maybe there's You're more right. now. I don't know. You know where else no. it actually you know talks about their own test. I can't imagine they'd contradict those books are very basic, and so I can't imagine they'd contradict them, you no. know, with a modern principle. But I think that the test has evolved so much that that is a first step at best. But it's a very solid first step. Yeah, true, true. You can't go wrong. You can't say that they don't understand the test. Well, you could, but nobody would believe you. Yeah, their book I found to be accurate. I just was left wanting more. Oh, yeah. Well, that's another reason why we do it, because part of the job is to get people so excited about LSAT <laughs> that they want a full LSAT library in their lives. It reminds me of this great story. One day, um, what was what was going on? Oh, I, I went to teach a class and I parked on the street and I, le I left the trunk of my car open. I believe it or not, I don't know how I did this. Okay, and there were a bunch of there were a bunch of LSAT books, you know, like expensive, you know, books bought like LSAT. And um, it's a true story. And then I thought, oh my God, I'm going to come back at the end of the day, and they're all gone. <laughs> Instead, I came back to my car, and people had added books. They threw books in my trunk. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's awesome. And at that moment, who... I realized that as obsessed as many people are about LSAT, not everybody sees the world that way. I mean, think of the hundreds of dollars of LSAT books there for the ceiling. <laughs> and rather than stealing, they added to them. And I think LSAT Super Prep was probably, you know, uh, there were probably a pile of them in there. So, okay. But anyway, uh, nothing bad can happen, but I don't think there's anything that's in itself. So we start with the LSAT stuff, obviously. Um, can we slice and dice, take yeah. portions of books? Sure. Um, I'll take the first half of the loophole. Um, chapters one through eight, I think are really good. She talks okay. about, she talks about language. Um, she talks about the ways to untangle the compl complex language of LR stimuli. Um, and she talks about the concept of rhetorical shift or false equivalency mm -hmm. and all that stuff is. And, and she also does a really good job of categorizing LR, uh, LR stimuli into only four groups. She mm -hmm. says there are four kinds of questions. There are, I forget her, her acronym, but it's basically there are arguments, there are paradoxes, there are debates, and there are a series of information. Well, I like anything that makes it seem like less. I think that's good. But that would, 
that would be consistent with, you know, I think a principle that we all agree on is that we need to focus on similarities and not differences. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so I think she does, she does a great is. job there. Past that point, chapter nine and later, she goes off the rails and starts talking about tips and tricks. And oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's, fr it's frustrating. But the All first right. half of the book is really good. But actually, I've never seen this book, but I've seen it mentioned. So you need to get in touch with the author and say, you need to improve your book by throwing out the second half, right? Somebody told me that. They were like, why don't you go tell her? I was like, who? I'm not going to go tell this woman that it's her a best-selling book. It's one yeah, of the top on. sellers in the market. So just so leave so it on. Improve your sales. Get rid of the second half. Okay, that's interesting. All right. Um, well, your thoughts on this, Keith, the good, other than the, the sample test. So we've got this, uh, Jake added LSAT, what, loophole? Yeah, loophole, yeah. Loophole. Okay. Jake likes the LSAT trainer too. He typically recommends that for people starting out because it's very understandable for an entry-level student. The books that I recommend, I kind of like Manhattan Prep's level of generality. I think it's middle of the road. It's sophisticated, but yet understandable and brief enough to consume and and get started on your prep so those are the ones that we'll throw out there that we've recommended in the past to students and, and khan academy for sure sure khan academy khan is like super prep it's is that right. is that uh, the else they, they, they work with elsa do they is that what that actually is is that has that replaced the whole concept of the free elsa sample test is that what that is I don't think it's degree. replaced it, but it, it is the only place where you can get explanations and strategy advice other than the super prep books that's sort of, you know, partnered with LSAC. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. So that's the good. Any any other additions to the good? All right. Uh, shall we go to the bad now? Or is there anything that's not in the good? That, well, no, because we have to distinguish the bad. And the, why don't we go to the ugly? Oh, the worst stuff out there. Well, by ugly, I mean the stuff that could harm you. The big box classes are harmful in one of two ways. They either are ineffective and extremely expensive with a, a large upfront cost. So you might blow your whole budget on something that doesn't work. And then for some people, those classes actually are help, uh, harmful because the teacher's inexperienced or because the methods are so basic or so convoluted that the, you know, the student doesn't really know what to trust and what not to trust. So yeah. well, it does seem to me that uh, the big box course is half be on a level that anybody can teach it. Right. And they, then if that's the case, then why are you getting it for $1,000 or $1,500 out of a big box course when you can get it for $50 out of the book that that same company publishes? Well, yeah, well, because there are people who just, you know, they're learning styles course and stuff. I think maybe the, the better question would be, you know, if a course is, that's what they cost, $1,500? Yeah. Okay, so if a course is $1,500, then, you know, that seems to me to be a good bit of tutoring. Yeah, but it it's going to require all that stuff that Keith said you needed, all of that executive functioning, all of that organization, mm -hmm. all of that deliberate practice okay. stuff. You have to be able to do that. So my experience with that stuff is, uh, is I used to get people, and by the way, let me just say, I can say with complete confidence that after teaching this stuff for years and years, I could not help everybody who was in my classes. Okay, let me make this clear. Okay, I'm not trying to hold this out as, you know. 
But what I did notice was that a lot of people who take one course will take another. And sometimes I have people come to my class and it was like, you know, an inch and a half of notes, right? You know, they were sitting there and they'd start the class and they'd say, uh, you know, I just want to get, so I, I guess you take a course somewhere else. And they say, oh yeah, you know, and, you know, this sort of thing. And when I would see an inch and a half of notes, it was pretty clear to me, okay, you know, that, you know, they were overly, you know, that what they were doing was confusing, you know, memorizing stuff, you know, et cetera, and they're going to be weak on the application. Okay. So that can be ugly. Um, it can be. All right. I guess to some extent, because you're locked into the course and it's probably not easy to leave if it's not working. Although I do think it's, it's leavable, uh, you, know, you know, et cetera. If you have a private and polite conversation, you know, with a company. Um, I, 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 and I would say, by the way, on that front, that I think for the most part, those people that do well in those big box courses would have done well anywhere. You may be right. You may be right. But remember, this is about improvements. Okay. It's actually not about the total scores. Okay. So that's potentially the ugly. What about just the bad? You know, we have good, we have ugly, we have bad. We need the bad to complete the good, the bad, the ugly, and to send them off to figure out who Clint is. I'd put the Bibles in the bad category. If you want to be an LSAT tutor, Read the power score Bibles. If you want a great LSAT score, you don't need them. In fact, they'll waste a lot of your time, I think, unless you're, you're using them in a very targeted way. And you're saying, all right, I'm going to look up this one thing that I'm struggling with. But to read them cover to cover, holy cow, is that a commitment? A commitment that I found tedious as a veteran LSAT tutor. I can't imagine how a student feels who's never seen this stuff before to sit down with 1500 pages of power score bibles and absolutely overwhelming absolutely overwhelming you know when people are first of all you know what we really haven't acknowledged today and i think it's worth acknowledging is that it's not as if people are making these decisions in a calm uh, rational state of mind okay you know Right. The fact is they're overwhelmed with fear. They exaggerate the importance of LSAT scores, usually. They even exaggerate the importance of becoming a lawyer, always. Yeah. Okay. You know, after having been one for 40-some years, I can tell you it's exaggerated. Okay. Um, and, and they're just, you know, they're really looking for comfort. And, you know, so I think that to some extent, you know, just that's why they ask, what did you take? What did you take? And... You know, I think, I think the, the right way to view this is, well, I've got to do as well as I can on this. Let's start off and understand as much about the tests I can and what I can do. And then, you know, reach out. But I think when you reach out, the greatest mistake is to put your LSAT future in the hands of one approach or one course. I think that you want to, you know, figure out what you can get out of, you know, what works for you um, in one way and you know, perhaps not another, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I think that's right. I, you know, it, 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 along those lines, I want to put in the bad category, not not a specific resource, but any resource that that um, that employs drilling question types as a long-term solution or an improvement solution. I think a, as with math, as you learn algebra or you learn geometry, it's valuable to drill a question type until you incorporate that the the understanding of the skill into 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 your practice mm -hmm. but beyond that 
I think what you're doing is artificially separating it from the whole. The, the value of algebra is not being able to answer a sheet of algebra questions. It's being able to employ the algebra when you're oh, doing absolutely. physics. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, think, I mean, it might be worth making the point that, that math as a general principle, including LSAT, is actually for purposes other than exams. For sure. uh, you know, probably a shock to a lot of people. You know, what's the purpose of algebra? Oh, well, it's something to do an exam on in school. But, you know, it's far more than that. No. Anyway, this has been great. And I think we probably can wrap it up today. For those listening, this is the LSAT Life Podcast. Because once you're into LSAT, everybody's life changes. And for some of them, they carry it to an extreme where they'd say, my life didn't change. It ended. Um, and in any case, uh, thanks, uh, Jake Feldman and Keith Seiske for this. And we will pick this up again soon. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto. Um, any very quick final thoughts, Jake, Keith, or till next time? Um, just make sure that when you go out and find those resources that you do it with a, with a sharp, keen mind and, and use the ones that work for you and ask questions of people you trust and, uh, you know, have a commitment to yourself of, of making things better every day. Yeah, and I'll add exhaust the free and inexpensive resources before you turn to the expensive ones. And I do three free hours of group tutoring a week. You can come and ask me any question you want. And I guess I would close with, uh, actually, your job is to put the right answer and to not become an LSAT teacher or an LSAT <laughs> historian. Even worse. Do you want to be 30 years later doing your own LSAT Life podcast? <laughs> Think about that. All right, guys, this has been great. Till next time. Thanks. Thanks, John. Thank you.